what is Jesus' assumption as he's speaking to the thousands of people gathered on the mountainside as he's speaking? They will be fasting. They will be fasting. One of the hindrances of learning the full regimen of being a Christian for Americans and people in the West is that we have been living in a culture, in a place, in a time that has had the least stress, perhaps in all of human history, in any place. The blessing of God that came upon those 200, 300 years ago who turned to Christ during the time of the Protestant Reformation. We just had the 500th anniversary of the Protestant, of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the cathedral wall, to, excuse me, cathedral door. But the, and the, the Protestant Reformation was not just a political thing. It was a massive turning to Christ in Europe. And the outcome of that, the Puritans coming to the, to the New World, and all of the Christian influence of those that came here. And we have lived as generations following the great awakenings that took place in Britain and in the colonies before the American Revolution and the great revivals that have taken place. And Lord, we thank you for all these blessings. But one of the things that this has done is that it has relieved us of some of the pressures and concerns that might come upon us that would call us to fasting. What is the purpose of fasting? What what where does it derive from? Let's turn back for just a moment to Daniel chapter 9, or I can just read this to you. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. Daniel is in Babylon. Daniel was one of that first wave of young, one of the first waves of young men that was taken by Nebuchadnezzar, taken to Babylon and put through training so he'd become a good Babylon, Babylonian bureaucrat and what they got instead was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, taking a firm stand for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the midst of the most ungodly, unwelcoming, dangerous environment on the planet that we know of. In Babylon, standing for the true and living God, unwilling to worship the emperor, unwilling to worship the Babylonian gods. And Daniel has been there for nearly 70 years. When we find him in Daniel chapter 9, as it says, in the first year of Darius, the, the son of Ahasuerus, what had happened? The Persians had come in and defeated the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and they had established a new empire. And you know what they did? Very, very, very smart thing. When they took over the Babylonian Empire, they started looking around at these Babylonian bureaucrats and said, hmm, who are the best ones here that we can recruit to be part of our government? And here's Daniel. 
And they said, oh, yeah, we want that guy. And so here he is now part of the Persian <laughs> apparatus, the Medes and the Persians. And it's the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, the book prophet Jeremiah, the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel and his three companions and many, many other Jewish, they were the sons of the wealth of the influential and powerful. They were taken to Babylon in 605 B.C. This is now about 536 or 7 B.C. And Daniel sees the 70 years. It had been promised. God said to, the, to Judah, you guys stink this place up so bad. Jerusalem and Judah. I'm getting you out of here. I'm sending you into captivity to the Babylonians for 70 years years well that 70 year period is about to come to an end and Daniel doesn't read that and say oh yay glory hallelujah I'll sit back and twiddle my thumbs no he doesn't do that at all then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes now, I've, he's got as solid a promise from God as you could possibly find in the Bible of what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. But what does Daniel do? He prays that what God has promised would happen. I wish I could tell you that the Christian life was hanging out at the beach while you just watch the waves come in and out, we won't talk about Hurricane Harvey here, <laughs> where it's just, a no, the Christian life is a rigorous process. God calls us to walk in obedience against the tide, against Everything in this world system that we live in is tipped against us. It is a struggle. But he gives us the power to push against that to God's glory, to God's glory, to God's glory, to God's glory. We have these people who are examples to us in the scripture. Put yourself in the place of Joseph. You are in a dungeon in Egypt. You've been sold by your brothers into slavery. You are sitting in that dungeon for years. I don't even want to, I don't think we can even conceive what an Egyptian dungeon in the year about 1800 BC would have been like. But that's where Joseph spent several years. But then what happened? He got sprung out of that dungeon and within a few hours he's the number two man in the land of Egypt. He was a man of incessant prayer. David was running around in the wilderness for years. King Saul had tried personally to kill him two times. King Saul sent a 
hit squad after him. He fled. And he saw God deliver and deliver and deliver. But can you imagine the weariness of David for years being in the wilderness and having those two opportunities to kill Saul and abbreviate, shorten that regimen? And he resisted. He chose instead to obey God. Walking with our Lord is a rigorous thing. Even though he can see the promises about to, that 70-year captivity is about to come to an end, what does Daniel do? He set aside time, extra time. This is a man who prayed three times a day on a regular day throughout his life. He sets aside extra time for prayer, for supplications, crying out, crying out, crying out, asking, asking, asking. With fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Why do those three things so often go together? Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Because when the enemy comes into your land, he empties your barns and he empties your pantry. And he, if he doesn't kill you, he kills a lot of your relatives. They take your clothing. Clothing is valuable. Clothing, everything's handmade. Everything's expensive. They take your clothing. They take your food. And they kill a lot of people. And so you fast initially because simply there is no food to eat. Anyways. You wear sackcloth because they, they emptied your closets. And so you go out in the barn and see what there's left, and here's some pieces of burlap. And so you clothe yourself in cloth made from a sack. And you put ashes on your face. Why? Distress the mourning because your spouse, your children, your brother, your sister, your parents people you loved in the community, they're dead. And that's a sign of mourning. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel is 70, nearly 70 years past seeing relatives killed when the Chaldeans came over the walls of Jerusalem. Why is he a man of great privilege? He is a man of great power in the Persian Empire, and yet he sets aside his wardrobe and wears sackcloth. He sets aside his food and goes to fasting. And he puts the ashes on his head because he still remembers the people who were lost, not just in the first, but also in the second and the third time the Chaldeans came over the walls. The third time they came over the walls, they said, we're done with this, and they tore the walls down. And so Daniel sets aside the time and he just sets aside everything and goes to fasting, sackcloth, prayer, supplication, the ashes. Because what he has before him is more important than that he should eat or dress in a way that is appealing to other people.
I've got more important things than eating. I need to pray. I need to pray. This is too big an issue for me even to take the time to do other things. I must do the critical thing. I need to pray, cry out to God. And what did Jim encourage us to a few minutes ago as we're praying for this people with the storm? We have a God who is the God of the storm. He is the God over the storm. Whatever sort of storm that might be, he is the God over it. Jesus says, and I keep quoting this because I'm driving it home to my own spirit and hopefully to yours. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is nothing I can't do. Nothing outside is outside of the realm of my authority, my power. And my wisdom governs over all. My, I am good. You can cry out to me for relief from your pain and I will hear you. I'm not indifferent to you. And so Daniel goes to the Lord and he cries out. And he says in Daniel 9, 4, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy to those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. What happened to Jerusalem and Judah was deserved. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Have I left anything out? Even by departing from your precepts and your judgments, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. Jeremiah was kidnapped and taken to Alexandria, Egypt, and murdered by Jews who did not want to hear what he was saying. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day, that to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which we have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. But, now I'm inserting a but, but I think it's deserved. But, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Mercy. Mercy. 
forgiveness. Bill Glass, I remember hearing him speak here in Kerrville in the mid-90s. Bill Glass was a, a very, very well-known, famous, he had been a, a lineman for the Cleveland Browns, very, very, very strong Christian. He came to Kerrville and led a crusade here. And I remember Bill Glass saying, whose principal ministry was going and speaking in prisons, he made the statement, when revival comes to America, it will start in the prisons. It will start in the prisons because those men and women have the <laughs> best grip on the reality of who they are as sinners before God, and they've only got one hope, a God of mercy and forgiveness. And you know what I love about this, the God of the Scripture? He says, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. I can forgive you. Amen. Why do we fast? What is that? That is taking time apart from the normal duties we have that we've filled our minds with that really can be set aside. Can we talk television? Can we talk the internet? Can we talk Facebook? And I'm, believe me, this is very convincing, convicting to me. Can we talk about all these things that really represent nothing but distractions from the reality of life? I read a testimony a few days ago Many of you know who Ravi Zacharias is. He goes all over the world. He's in, from India. He's a very strong Christian, and he goes all over the world. He's recently was in the Middle East. And he mentioned way back in 1972, I believe it was, he was in Vietnam speaking. And there was a young man, 17 years of age, who was his translator, who went with him. And about two, three years later, when the North Vietnamese took over South Vietnam, he was arrested. He was put in a prison camp. Very, very, very strong Christian. But he just decided, I, I've, I'm paying way too big a price for being loyal to Jesus. I'm not going to do this anymore. He had really decided, I'm, I'm done with serving the living God. This is too high a price. The next day, he was given the assignment of cleaning the latrines. And here is the basket where everybody put their toilet paper or whatever. And he noticed this one piece of paper that had been used by the camp commander, it turned out. He looked at that. It was a page from the New Testament. So he pulled that out and he washed it off. And then he was given the assignment of cleaning the latrines every day. He put together almost an entire New Testament that way. And that was what God did to bring him strength. In He was there for four 
years. Our brother Seton Lee was in Paul Plot's camp for four, nearly four years. And in that circumstance, with only the word of God and the Holy Spirit speaking to him through that word, this young man was strengthened. And after four years, he was released and he was able somehow, by a miracle of God, he was able to escape and come to the United States and just a few years ago, Robbie Zacharias thought of this guy. And he wondered, I wonder what happened to that 17-year-old boy. And he found him an executive of a business in Los Angeles. And he made contact with this man, and he was able to tell him how he had been strengthened by God through this New Testament that he put together out of the dung basket. And he was a loyal follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say when you fast? We are looking now, we have right now Hurricane Harvey. And that's an immediate threat to many of our own relatives, many people, whole towns being wiped out. But what's the biggest problem this nation, and indeed every nation on this planet, faces? Population whose heart is hard. Daniel is praying 68 or 69 years after his being sent to captivity. The 70 years is about to end. He is crying out. He is praying a prayer of repentance and restoration. That far more than Hurricane Harvey is the threat of hell. The threat of judgment that authentically, righteously hovers over this nation. One of the things that is remarkable to me in, in studying the Sermon on the Mount, but other things in the scripture, who is it? Let me ask you this question. Who is it that talks more about hell than everybody else put together in the Bible? Jesus! Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You're going where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He is saying to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, you are going to, those are the ones, you are going to hell. Hell hovers over, that threat hovers over every single human being on this planet until by the help of God, they turn in repentance to Christ and cry out to him for mercy, for forgiveness. And you know what we get when we do that? Mercy and forgiveness. He is the God who is rich in mercy, who is more eager to forgive us than we are to cry out for forgiveness. That's what he does. But what does he ask? What does God ask of us, his people, to bring that to pass when you fast? 
when you set aside the regular regimens of your life, when you set that aside, because I've got more important things to do than eat. This is a chosen fast. It isn't because somebody came in and emptied Daniel's pantry. It's because he's chosen to dedicate his time and energy to crying out to God instead of sitting down with a knife and a fork. I will set that aside for the more important, for the more important, for the more. And as Jesus says, don't do this in a way that people will understand. No, this is, before, this is between you and God. And the one who sees in secret will see it. He alone, and he will answer you. Where is the place of great power as a Christian? Where do you exercise the greatest power? It's as you, it is as you stand in God's throne room with your eyes fixed on his throne, on him who sits on the throne, and you cry out to him based on his promises. And he keeps his promises. This is the God who is loyal to his own word. He does what he says he will do. When you fast, don't do it for the eyes of men. Don't even tell anybody what you're doing. Do it privately. But take those requests that you have that the world says cannot be answered whether it's for physical healing, people's conversion, people's growing up in the Christian life. Take those before the one who eagerly hears and eagerly responds. Don't insult God by mouthing prayers to him that you do not expect him to answer. That's nothing, nothing but an insult. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they're doing it for men. They're doing it to get the attention of men. No, 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 no. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Because why? Because people stand back, oh, look at that fellow. He is obviously fasting. What a holy man he is. The world really is impressed by this ridiculous stuff. It's so superficial. It's just superficial. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward that they're really seeking. People are impressed because they're not doing it authentically before God. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret face, place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And things will begin to unfold before you that you prayed for, that the world said, well, that can't happen. We already know the conclusion. No, and then here is a God event that it's reversed and God steps in, Cole Loach should be dead. His mother, Paula Richards, should be dead 
She should have died from oxygen deprivation three or four years ago. And she doesn't even need the oxygen anymore. He's walking around with working. <laughs> and that's how we prayed for these other people. That same God shows up and shows up according to our expectation and our prayer. The Christian life isn't easy, but it is simple. Do, do you believe what he says? That's it. The proposition of climbing Mount Everest isn't an easy proposition. By the way, I won't do that. <laughs> I don't have to. I'm not commanded by God to climb Mount Everest. Thank you, God. It's not easy, but it is a simple proposition, isn't it? I mean, go from here to there. What's God pro God's proposition to us? Believe me. Don't believe the propaganda from the world. Believe me. Defy the world, the flesh, and the devil. Defy them in favor of trusting my word. And cry out to me consistently, consistently, consistently. Wear the knees out on your pants. Cry out to me and I will hear you. And we have so many examples both in the scripture and we can all line up here and start recounting testimonies, perhaps from our own lives, of how God shepherded us or others of whom we know to outrageous victories and deliverances. We can do it. And it's the same God for all of us. What does he ask of us? I want you to believe what I'm saying so completely, as did Daniel, so completely that you will set aside the standard practices of your life to devote yourself to what is the most powerful thing you can do. Do you really care enough to see your desires for yourself that are holy desires for yourself, for your family, for your community? Do you care enough? Do you believe enough to actually set aside and do this quiet, secret regimen? When you do that, I, God, get elephant ears for your prayers. I will hear you and I will answer you. Did God answer the prayer of Daniel? He absolutely did. And back they went. Back they went. At the end of the 70 years captivity. Our Lord. It's not easy. But it is simple. Do we believe you? Will you. Step in and be our defender? Will you step in and be the one who delivers us? And again, Lord, we hold before you all those whom we prayed for earlier, beginning with Tommy on down through the list. We hold them before you that you will be praised out of their life experience. 
Make a name for yourself in Tommy's life, in Cole's life, in John Hennigan's life, DJ's life, London's life, Debbie Ann, Joshua, Daniel, Jason, Jacob, Jeffrey, Summer, Ed's mom, those who are being victimized by this storm, deliver them, Kathy. We ask for each of them, and so many names that others are thinking right now, that you will be praised as an outcome of having delivered them from the test that is facing them. We ask this of you, mighty and good and wise God. And all God's people said,